Hey, it's Justin Harvey. Thanks for tuning in to the Anesthesia Success Podcast, where we take a close look at important topics pertaining to business, practice management, personal finance, and careers for anesthesiologists and pain management physicians. On this show, I work hard to take your critical questions straight to the experts. Thanks for listening. This week, I'm talking to Dr. Stephen Freiberg. And I'm really excited for this episode. It's going to be a little bit different. As you know, I am not a doctor, so I stay far, far away from the clinical stuff. This week is a little different because I'm talking to Dr. Freiberg about his professional and clinical transition from residency to fellowship and fellowship to attending hood. And I'm going to let him unpack some of the steps, decisions, some of the pearls that he's picked up along the way and talk about how should a physician make smooth clinical transitions between jobs as you move towards and attending role as an anesthesiologist. So hope you enjoyed today's episode. As always, thanks for tuning in. Hello and welcome to episode 54 of the Anesthesia Success Podcast. I'm very pleased to be joined this evening by my friend, Dr. Stephen Freiberg. Dr. Freiberg is a cardiothoracic anesthesiologist currently and attending in the Orlando area. He trained at Duke and Johns Hopkins If you recognize his voice, you might have heard him on the ACRAC podcast with our friend, Dr. Jed Wolpaw, and he's here today to just share a few pearls about how to optimize and make good decisions while you're transitioning clinically from residency to attendinghood. Dr. Freiberg, thanks for being with us. Justin, thanks so much for having me. Really excited, really a big fan of the show, and I wanted to reach out mostly because I heard Dr. Jimmy Turner do an episode where he kind of talked about the successful transition to attending hood really from a financial standpoint. And there is no doubt that he is the expert in that realm. I'm a big fan of Dr. Turner as well. Um, What I thought about and what I thought I could help bring as a reasonably new attending, I'm a couple of years in practice and I don't think I've made anyone too angry too far. I'd like to hope and think that I'm on a successful track is What I guess you could also argue is the first key to the financial standpoint, and certainly this is the anesthesia success podcast, the success standpoint is you, you got to do well when you first, when you get that first job. And I guess this applies even to, this is coming up on July 1st. It's the same with new interns, new residents, and certainly new attendings. What is the first key to success in financial security is making sure your income is stable. And I think I have, hopefully a little insight to help a new-ish or a new attending or resident make that first uh, transition smooth and really get hit the ground running. Yeah, I'm really excited to talk about that this evening. And shout out to our friend, Dr. Jimmy Turner. Thanks for introducing us, the physician philosopher, uh, a friend of the show as well. And also, I'm glad you brought that up. Congratulations to all the new interns and the new CA1s who are now doing anesthesia for the first time. Uh, If you're out there listening to this podcast, tell your friends about it because there's a whole new crop of doctors now that could be interested in what we have to say here today. So I've got this 10-point bulleted list here in front of me, Dr. Freiberg, which you were kind enough to send me, and I just want to work our way through it. So why don't you tell me, number one, keys to a smooth clinical transition as an anesthesiologist? Absolutely. And you reminded me how awesome it was to become a CA1. Again, this is specific to anesthesia, so I can focus in on this a little bit because, at least for me personally, intern year was filled with things that I knew I didn't want to do. Yeah. And not to say that there's not some value in the year and you learn a lot, but to finally get to do anesthesia, just my whole life got better, my whole outlook improved. So, the <laughs> ones you made it, and those folks that are going into anesthesia in your intern year, well, it, it gets better. 
Yeah, I distinctly remember that transition for my wife. She had just moved to Philadelphia from Portland. And that first year living, you know, in, in, in like a strange city for the first time. And the <laughs> just the crush of intern year was so... And it was a, it was a you know, a lot, our relationship. We were sorting things out. We were in the same city for the first time. And it was just, I, I think about intern year and I think, that's a very dark time. And then she came out into CA1 and it was like this, just, you know... She was so relieved and hasn't looked back. So, yeah, intern years tough, and it, I think it corresponds with a lot of life transitions for a yeah. lot of people that tend to get clustered all at the same time. You know, folks graduate med school. A lot of folks like to get married or finalize relationships in some way. All the while, you're moving to a new place. You might be purchasing a new home or renting a new home. There's yeah. so many changes that happen at once. Not to mention, you are now a real life doctor. So. As much as we just stick, you know, stick in there, hang tough, you're going to do great and it does get better. That's but right. I digress. That's right. So, you know, I'm an anesthesiologist. I'm definitely obsessive, probably a little bit compulsive. I love making lists. And one of my favorite movies is actually High Fidelity, um, which has recently been done as a show on Hulu, which I can't say I've seen. So if anyone likes it, let me know. But I recently read the book as well. And it was kind of weird because it was one of those times where I had seen the movie before I read the book. And so the voices of the movie were already in the book. But anyhow, the movie is about this rather compulsive list maker. He's very into music and he always makes top five lists. So I can relate intensely. So I did in fact make this top 10 list for making a successful transition to clinical practice. Perfect, which we are gonna post in the show notes, by the way. So anesthesiasuccess.com slash 54. You can find a copy of this list if you wanna have it for a keepsake. Absolutely. So point one, I actually say probably starts, well, definitely starts even before you start as an attending, or I suppose even an intern as a resident, is to establish clinical excellence. And that really starts in training. And what I mean by that is I do think it's the responsibility of the resident and of the learner to maximize your training. Yes, you hopefully have great attendings who are there, great cases, great people to learn from, but you have to learn as much as you can and look for opportunities to learn whenever you can. If you identify your weaknesses, work on them. If you figure out, hey, you know, I'm really not doing so great on this PEDS rotation or I finished my PEDS rotation, I think I could use some work. That's what you should focus on. I would argue that if you're planning on doing a fellowship or a subspecialty of some sort, spend time in areas other than those. If you're going to do for example, pediatric anesthesia as your fellowship, spend extra time in cardiac or regional or OB, whatever it is, because that's the time to really hone those skills when you're going to get an additional year in peds, for example. So I really tried to do that, and I think it helped maximize my education. And ultimately, I ended up in a position where, yes, I'm a cardiothoracic anesthesiologist, but I do a little bit of everything. And I do nerve blocks, I do nerve catheters, I take care of healthy peds. And I think had I not maximized my education the best I could, I may have limited myself in the job opportunities available to me. As you knew that you were going to do cardiac, did you make any decisions intentionally? Like what, what was the thing that you did in advance of the fellowship to say, oh, this might be my last shot to do OB or to do PEDS? I quite literally did exactly that. At least the way the residency was structured at Hopkins, your CA3 year is pretty open to make the selections of the rotations that you'd like. So I did additional time in thoracic. I did additional time in major vascular, peds, et cetera, because I knew, and at that point, I think 
I'm trying to recall the timeline. I want to say by end of CA2 year, you actually even know where you've matched and where you're going. Um, so that was pretty much locked in. And so I was able to really sort of maximize what I wanted to focus on otherwise during my CA3 year. And the other big thing is that, you know, let's be honest, residency can be a grind. And some days it's easy to phone it in. You know, you, you put the tube in, you turn on the SIVO and, you know, go on the internet. Not that anyone's ever done that before um, or read the newest article, whatever it is. But, you know, I really just try and push myself on days that I feel like I was wanting to phone it in, find something to work on, find something to perfect. How smooth can you get your wake up to be? How perfect can the hemodynamics be for your case? Or think about what is my attending really an expert in? Is this person the absolute world expert in neuroanesthesia or whatever it is? Ask them about neuroanesthesia. Really take the opportunity to push yourself because I would argue what matters more than where you go to train, it's how you maximize that training. The best anesthesiologist is gonna be the one who puts in the best effort. It doesn't matter whether you go to the quote unquote best school. So I really think that you take the opportunity to maximize your time as a resident or even as a fellow, that sort of mindset should continue. That's the first step in being a successful attending. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Let's talk about number two, trust your training. Absolutely. So it is terrifying to roll in your first day, second day, whatever it is. Maybe your new job has a pretty lengthy orientation process. I know some places you get paired on with another attending for anywhere up to a week or two, not even because they don't trust you or that you don't know what to do, but there's always a lot of systems to learn, a new medical record, learn the surgeon, et cetera. My orientation was about three hours. I was paired with an anesthesiologist. He made sure my Pixis axis worked and he said, okay, you're going to go take over this other room, which was a very, very sick, complicated case where I didn't even know, you know, where all the drugs and the tubes were yet. Wow. But the fact of the matter is you have to believe in yourself, especially if you've taken the time to maximize that training, you know what to do. And it's not an arrogance. It's not an overconfidence but you know what to do and you deserve to be in the position you're in. I know something I've talked about a little bit with Dr. Wolpaw is uh, just the idea of imposter syndrome. And I know that's something he's talked about a bit and with some of the content he's done over at ACRAC. And this is like exactly where it kicks in. You know, you're looking around like, oh no, where's the attending? It's getting dicey. And then you're like, oh man, that's me. So how did you deal with that at, the, at that time frame? We'll touch on this a little bit in some of the other points, but the fact of the matter is, for the most part, there's always help available um, with some uh, scary exceptions, but there's always help available. And I would argue, not unlike in a residency program, if you're hired, that group has now invested in you, at least to an extent. They want you to succeed and probably an even more, I guess, uh, cynical way of looking at it, they don't want any malpractice or lawsuit or bad outcome to fall upon yeah. their group. And if that's contingent upon someone coming to help you, they're going to do it. So that's one thing to keep in mind. But again, there's definitely that bit of imposter syndrome. And it's exactly like you said, it's like, oh, I, where is the attending? And it's like, oh, but that, that's me now. Yeah. And you, just, you take a deep breath, say, I've done this before, or I've done something exactly like it. And you put one foot in front of the other. Yeah. And I think that, you know, similarly, as I said, you trust your training, you have confidence, but also have humility. And I think one of the things that rubs people the wrong 
long way very quickly. And you'll see it sometimes when folks transition either from another job or from residency to fellowship, or if they've transitioned amongst institutions, especially ones with very famous names, don't name drop. It just drives <laughs> people crazy if you say, oh, this is the way I used to do it at Man's Best Hospital or whatever it is. Or, you know, it will get under people's skin so quickly just if they're doing it a different way. And especially if it's a safe anesthetic, say, great, never done that way. Show me how you do it. Or even the more subtle way can just be something as simple as, you know, I've never done it that way. Can I show you what I like to do? I think it's a little less grating than when people start name dropping. So I'd keep that in mind. What about during my time in Boston? Is that acceptable? I think it's better. <laughs> I do think it's better than uh, naming any of those given hospitals. I think it, it might smooth over a little bit more. Cool. And then again, in conjunction with trusting your training and being confident, also remember that a simple, straightforward and safe anesthetic will gain you more traction than coming in and, you know, suddenly trying out new things. It's not unlike, you know, when you take the oral boards, they're asking you to do what's safe and they will throw out options that is going to be weird. And if you start talking about an anesthetic that you don't know how to do, they're going to nail you for it because they can tell you're giving something that you've read in a book or in theory. And that's okay. Like you don't need to do some weird esoteric anesthetic because someone else does it. If you know, this is the way I can do it safely. There's time to address to a surgeon's preferences and things like that. And flexibility is an important part, but safety comes first. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So you talked about flexibility as number three, be flexible. Things will change. Exactly. So I guess that transitions well into point three, you've got to be flexible. Your assignments will change. The surgeon will change who's doing the case or change their plan. And again, as long as it's safe for the patient's care, try and adapt. Because I think it goes such a long way to be someone that's adaptable and flexible. You know, if you get a big change or a schedule change, a simple, I got it, no problem, probably doesn't seem like much. And to be truthful, it probably won't garner much attention but will we'll gain a lot of negative attention is if someone gives you a change of some sort and you're inflexible and you whine about it and you stomp your feet or cop an attitude, that will garner attention. And that's not the sort of attention you want in your first job. No kidding. Can you remember a time when you came into a case or you were prepping for a case and the surgeon is like, you know what, can we maybe consider doing something a little differently? And it was a surgeon's preference that you wanted to try to, you know, sort of straddle the line between accommodating a physician and advocating for patient safety. And you had to sort of like figure that out. I'm sure there's time that's more times that I can uh, even come to think of. And again, a lot of it will come. And I think I'll mention a little bit about communication and expectation setting and even just how you frame things. I, you know, I might be jumping the gun on my list a little bit, but you know, the classic example you always hear about is NPO violations that the patient ate or whatever it is, and the surgeon will say, well, but we gotta go now. One of the ways I'll phrase things to surgeons that I think maintains an element of flexibility and a can-do attitude, but also patient safety, is I don't say, and I've seen colleagues do this, oh, the patient ate case is canceled. I will say to the surgeon, look, the patient ate two hours ago. If you think this is critical, life-threatening, we're gonna do it. Otherwise, I will do the case for you in six hours. 
And I think just that simple rephrasing shows a more willingness to help out than just being like, oh, they ate, we're done. And I think that can go a long way. Yeah. And I think that's a nice segue into number four. A lot. Of, I'm noticing a lot of these are universal truths. <laughs> be polite. <laughs> you know, I guess you'd be surprised or not surprised how quickly it seems these universal truths are forgotten. Yeah. It has to be polite. I really can't overemphasize that. And more importantly, it's be polite to everyone. It's to the nurses, to the techs, to the ancillary staff. You can't imagine what it does for your reputation. And the fact of the matter is people talk and people listen and it matters. And as much as you might not think about the person who mops the floor, what their opinion's gonna have an impact, all that travels around and it helps or can potentially hurt build your reputation. And your reputation is really all you've got, especially when you're first starting out. And I've listened pretty recently to a podcast where you know, they talk about a lot of times you like to advocate that, oh, I don't care what people think of me. And I, I think there's value in that. But at the same time, it matters a lot what people think of you from the way you treat others and from sort of your moral fiber, so to speak. Yeah. So again, to be a doctor who shows up with a smile, says please, says thank you, who when you show up and pack you actually help put the monitors on the patient as opposed to just dropping and turning on your heels, people notice and it matters. So again, just be polite. And what I've found in my comparative length of life, most of the time it's easier to be nice than to be a jerk. It takes more energy to be mean. (laughs) Well, that probably says something about the kind of person you are too. Uh, well, I'll tell you, I'm a lot more likely to let somebody like if they say, you know, I just got to like be honest and be myself. Like if that person who needs to just say what they're going to say is coming from a place of like, yeah, I, I'm a respecter of all human persons, <laughs> both high and low <laughs> uh, and does treat everyone with that like fundamental dignity. That's going to give you credibility when you have a tough conversation or when you say something that was taken the wrong way or you have that, you know, you just have that relational capital with people and they know you know what this is somebody who cares about people and maybe he in the heat of the moment when there were like 16 physicians in this room trying to handle this case that went awry like he said something or whatever that that he that he regretted and you can you can move on from a place of uh that common understanding exactly and you know remember a lot of the folks at any given institution have been there a lot longer than you have and you might not think it matters but again this one scrub tech or this person mopping the floors or whatever it might be might have known the surgeon you're working with for the past 20 years. And in some strange ways, they might trust that person more than they trust you. And that's okay. They have more relationship with them, but all the more reason you don't want them bad talking you, especially if you've given them reason to bad talk you. So, you know, right as we kind of get to the midpoint of this list, one of the more senior partners when I was first starting said to me, he said, look, man, being flexible, being easy to work with and being polite will take you farther in your career, really more so than the speed with which you can place a central line or your ability to do some regional, you know, some obscure regional block is really just the way you interact with people. And I think you can't undervalue that. Yeah. That reminds me of a a story. There was a, a guy like, an older person in this company who would hire people and he had this like local joint that he would always take them for lunch for the interview. And he was friends with everyone there. And he knew that they knew every time he brought someone in, 
on an interview that it was a setup and that they were to essentially like get his order wrong, spill his, like stress him and, and see if he treated the waitress, treated the cook and the manager with the dignity deserved by his fellow man, or if he like flew off the handle and it was this guy's, you know, hypothesis that that told him everything he needed to know about the character of the person he was, uh, he was about to hire. So I think, I think I kind of like the strategy. I'll be honest. Um, you know, and I think a lot of those little techniques are employed in even more formal interview situations. People just want to see, you know, how you interact and what sort of moral fiber you have. So, and you know, at least if you're a jerk, you get a free meal out of it, I guess. (laughs) That's right. Number five, this is, this one's near and dear to my heart. Be punctual. Oh my goodness. I, you know, I was routinely amazed as I progressed through my training Adults, adult learners, but they are adults, some with, well, I'll I'll take a step back. Some with children that adds an extra, you know, layer to the complexity of punctuality sometimes. (laughs) But ultimately, these are all adults, some of whom are older than me, have had other careers, and they were late. They would just show up late all the time. And we're not talking like, oh, two minutes out of the door, like 25 minutes late. It's like, what are you doing on the first day of residency? (laughs) And look, things happen. I get it. But most of the time, a lot of the time, you can make steps to limit the likelihood with which that can happen. And so let me tell you, it was on my second day at this job. I was, I will stand by miscommunicated into showing up late. And actually, frankly, it was even, it wasn't even technically late. It was later than is the typical expectation of the pre-op staff with which they see the attending anesthesiologist. And that news spread so quickly that I got a call from the division chief shortly followed by the chief of the group inquiring about why I was late on my second day. It's not a good feeling and it's not a good way to start. And I felt like I was doing pretty aggressive damage control from that, you know, minor error for I'd say a good month. So learn from, inferior people like myself and just show up on time get up a little early enjoy your coffee if you're there too early just be on time really speaks volumes and look the fact of the matter is in many institutions the culture is a lot of other physicians are later than we are and for whatever reason that's given more leeway but certainly as a new physician and as an anesthesiologist you will not self set yourself up well to try and you know test that dynamic i'm curious how how those two phone conversations went and if uh if your uh miscommunication was looked on graciously um i don't think so i don't think it was looked on (laughs) and on top of that i wasn't in a position to sort of throw the miscommunicator under the bus nor did i feel like it was really their fault and i said to the person i said i i said i'm not really understand you know how i was late you know i was this is what time I was in the pre-op area and I was into the OR, you know, five minutes early. And he said, well, that's not how we do things here. You need to be here by this time. I said, okay, you know, so sorry. Won't happen again. And he said to me, he goes, look, you said, he goes, look, you're new here. You don't want to make waves. And I was just like, not trying to make waves, man. <laughs> I just uh, didn't know what time the culture was to arrive. So, you know, if you can get that, that information early, that's probably helpful too. But um you know, that comes down to, you know, if you make mistakes, you own it. I didn't, I didn't get long into, oh, but so-and-so told me this. It was like, sorry, 
didn't know, won't happen again. And just kind of kept moving on from there. Makes sense. Number six, be collaborative and empowering. Absolutely. So I kind of mentioned a little bit, even when we talked about sometimes having to compromise with surgeons and the example about NPO violations. What's NPO, by the way? Sorry, nothing by mouth. As you might know, Justin, is you for, well, this is actually changing with enhanced recovery after surgery protocols, but there are typically some sort of restrictions on how close to eating and drinking before you have your surgery. Got it. A non, non-clinician question there. Got it. Completely <laughs> appropriate. And actually, I learned embarrassingly recently, it stands for, I hope I'm not saying this wrong, it's nil per os, mm. which I think is Latin or some smart person language for nothing but that. <laughs> Got it. But again, so much is just how you phrase things. But being collaborative and empowering, I think, is especially germane in anesthesia care team models in a supervisory situation, whether it's with nurse anesthetists or residents or anesthesia assistants. I think you might have a little bit more leeway to be prescriptive, especially when working with residents. They are training and learning after all. But I think it will even value you as how you're looked at as an educator and as an attending to empower your learner or empower your coworker or anesthesia care team member. Again, remember, you'll be working with folks who might, one, be more experienced technically than you are in terms of how long they've been working in a given field, or at minimum, they may have been at that institution longer. So again, it also has to do with flexibility. If someone in your anesthesia care team model has a particular way of delivering an anesthetic and it's safe, it might not be worthwhile to really, you know, create a hill to die on to change that anesthetic technique. In fact, you might even learn something. And what I would say is that if there's a situation which you think is pretty significant to hammer home, or if you think it dictates a change in the anesthetic plan, engage the members of your team. And I'll often say something to the effect of, you know, I think this patient would really do great with X, Y, or Z, with a TIVA anesthetic or an extra anti-emetic. What do you think? How do you like to achieve these goals? How do you think we should address his critical aortic stenosis? And I think guiding those conversations can one, often teach you a thing or two, and again, empower the members of your team. And I think when a person feels empowered and not micromanaged really helps the way you're looked at and really helps the way you're able to work in your team. Again, whether it's other surgeons, anesthesia professionals, it all just goes to teamwork and really go a long way. And I think great strides have been made to move away from the sort of uh, solo superhero cowboy physician and recognition to how important it is for medical teams. And that certainly is no exception in anesthesia. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I was listening to a podcast, one of the podcasts that I like called The Moment by Brian Koppelman. I don't know if anybody else out there listens to it, but he did a recent interview with a guy named Jocko Willink who's a pretty famous, like a management consultant now, but he's a Navy SEAL and a, uh, a guy who's basically an expert in leadership, leadership techniques. And he was telling this story in this podcast, I'll, I'll link it in the show notes, about how leading from a place of humility with questions and involving others creates buy-in that increases cohesiveness, that will show you your blind spots. You might just find a response that you don't expect when you ask a question, like, what do you guys think? Like, well, because, you know, I could easily see somebody making an observation 
in some instance where it's like, wow, I maybe I missed that detail or there, that was something I didn't consider. And, and it may be a, you know, a salient fact to the way you're going to administer care. So leading from a place of engagement and asking questions and getting buy-in just has so many benefits. And that was something that he saw, you know, in war. <laughs> the, the example he was using was like platoon leader. We've got to like, you know, take this hill. Guys, what do you think is the best way to do this? And obviously in the context of asking others to put their lives on the line, that buy-in is very important. But I think, you know, in a, a similar kind of way, creating a team atmosphere and a common goal and having everyone participate and pull in the same direction in the OR is also very important. Absolutely. And that reminds me, there was an interview I'd heard with uh, Peter Pronovost, who was at Johns Hopkins for a long time, was world-renowned for the work he's done with patient safety. And he also told a story, I think, again, military-related, and it just has to do with empowering the members of your team, that if you ask the individual who's mopping the floors of an aircraft carrier, and you say, what is your job? They're going to tell you, I help launch planes from the aircraft carrier safely. They're not going to say, I mop the floors. That's only a small part of the greater goal. And certainly, almost universally, when you get into problematic or heated or controversial situations in medicine, especially with the medical team, with rare exception, everyone wants what's best for the patient. And I think that's the common goal. And as long as you can empower people to feel that they are purposefully involved in that goal, you can have a better working environment. Makes a lot of sense. Number seven, be a yes physician. What does that mean? So, you know, I think classically it's heard of, it's the thought is, you know, be a yes man, but you know, he for she and lady physicians and lady bosses, all that great <laughs> stuff. And I, I really am all for it. So I think yes physician is probably the better way to describe it. And again, shout out to Dr. Jimmy Turner. He says he has a hell yes policy, meaning that if something doesn't make him say an enthusiastic hell yes, he doesn't do it. And I get that policy and I love it. But at the beginning, it might be prudent to bend that just a little bit and be willing to take on, you know, responsibility or to say yes to things that maybe doesn't give you quite the hell yes feeling. Or even more so, look for the opportunities that do make you say hell yes. Again, if you're approached to lead a committee or you know, take on a certain case or a leadership role, either seize that opportunity and say, yes, I'm here for it, or at least maybe provide an alternative. If they say, you know, we want you to lead our committee on obstetric anesthesia safety, and you can't stand obstetric anesthesia, chances are you wouldn't be invited into that committee. Those things tend to not go unnoticed. But you might say, you know what, I really appreciate you being, you know, you're asking me that but my real passion is vascular anesthesia. I would really love to join this committee. And I think, again, that shows your willingness to be involved and that you're here for the team and to make your group or your practice or your residency program better. And so I think if you, again, say yes to a variety of opportunities, some may surprise you in that they might turn out to be uh, very wise decisions that you come to love, or certainly at a minimum, it again shows that you're, to torture the catchphrases, that you're probably the go-getter that you more than likely advertised yourself to be when you interviewed with the group. Right. So you know, again, <laughs> it's not a good impression if you say, you know what, I'm, I'm here, I'm a leader, I'm a go-getter, et cetera. Those are all things we say in an interview and hopefully we mean them. 
And if you're new to a group and they say, for lack of a better word, all right, prove it. And you go, uh, no, not interested. Again, you know, these things are remembered. So again, if something, you know, literally gives you chills or corrupts your, you know, your inner well-being, I'm not saying to go for it. But, you know, give a little bit of wiggle room to the hell yes policy and look for those opportunities. And certainly from a clinical standpoint, when it comes to caseload and getting cases done, especially at the beginning, you know, I'm all for work-life balance. It's important. We should prioritize our well-being. But again, you're here to show that part of the reason you're brought on to this group or this team is you're here to do the work. So at least for the beginning, first few handful of times, hey, are you willing to stay late? Can you do this extra case? The answer should be an unhesitant yes. And I think in an amount of time, if you find that you're really sort of being abused or being asked to stay late too frequently, it actually might tell you a lot about the group and that might not be the right place for you. But overall, I think you should show that willingness to stay late and work hard, et cetera. And it really does speak volumes. That makes a lot of sense. Were there any opportunities for you maybe early on or maybe even in your residency or fellowship days where you implemented this policy and perhaps you had to like reconsider your knee jerk reaction? Say, you know what, I'm going to I'm going to do I'm going to do exactly what you just described. Or maybe that's something that you learned along the way. <laughs> I'm going to be very, very personal with it is that, and I'm, I'm not telling this story with which to brag in any way, just the, the truth experience. I was humbled and honored to be chief resident at Johns Hopkins. And it was a great opportunity. I learned a lot, but it's a lot of work and it's a lot of responsibility. And it's a lot of dealing with interpersonal challenges, as I believe your wife will find out soon enough. Yep. Um, and it was a wonderful opportunity, but I couldn't wait to be done with it when the time finally came. And right around that time was coming up, I got an invitation from Duke University where I was about to start my fellowship, is that would you be willing to be our chief fellow? And, you know, again, I said to my wife, you know, she, she, goes, she goes, there is no way you're doing this. After, you know, the amount of time she'd watched me make schedules, and I quite literally said, you know, this is exactly what I told this program that has been kind and generous or stupid enough to match me that I am a leader. I'm here to go ahead. And as Zeba said, they're basically saying before I'd even started the program, can you be a leader? How am I going to say no? Yeah. Um, and I think that helped establish hopefully the reputation I set for myself as I started the fellowship there. And um, hopefully they didn't come to regret that decision too horribly after a year's time. And ultimately I didn't either is the truth of it. So, yeah. And that one does hit close to home because you know, anybody out there who has a significant other who's married, like it's, you're not just committing for you. And I similarly with Sarah, you know, we're talking about her being a chief this year. And she, like, she's like, you know, what do you think? And I was like, well, I, you know, I think it sounds like an amazing thing and I, I want you to absolutely like go for it. But it, we reflected like this is it's not just her it's kind of our family and it's me and it's our son who are all in in her corner and supporting her but also we're all kind of contributing to that we have we have skin in the game uh and it's you know that's something that well i agree with everything you said i i'm also cognizant of the fact that there's competing priorities in life and your job is what it is and it's very important to take excellent care of patients and to be a leader. And, and you've got to hold that intention with, uh, you know, caring for your loved ones and doing the other things that are very important to 
you know, like you said, your mental health and, and other things. So I think that probably takes a while to just kind of learn. And really, one can't trivialize in any sort of way the experience of a physician's family, especially through training or even after training. Yeah. It incre- you know, it's, a, it's really a journey taken by all parties involved, and mm-hmm. it can be incredibly challenging and burdensome. And I think communication and expectation setting is really, I'm clearly uh, digressing here, but is really the key to success in that regard. And even to say to your partner, look, you know, these first six months, I'd rather be home with you. I'd rather be home with the kids. But if you can offer me a little bit of grace for a couple late nights that I, you know, might be home for, not, might not be home for dinner, might not be able to put little Jimmy to bed or whatever it is. You know, I think as long as they understand that this is hopefully a temporary component of your journey and that you're trying to build success for your family as a unit, yeah. hopefully you're involved with a partner who, you know, understand and you share that sort of goal and value together and can, you know, offer a little bit of grace for a couple uh, missed appointments or whatever it might be. But, you know, I, I can say as a, a husband and father, I try not to make it too much of a habit. Yeah. I mean, hundred percent. We could have a whole other episode about that and maybe we will one day. Maybe we could do the 2.0. Okay. Number eight. Look to add value outside of clinical anesthesia. Absolutely. So it's expected that you will be a great clinical anesthesiologist. It simply is. They wouldn't hire you if they didn't think so. No one hires someone into a group thing like, eh, they should be able to get the job done. It's just not what it is. So how else will you add value to your group or your practice? And again, this is an opportunity where I think you can, you know, be a little bit more selective is what is it that makes you say hell yes and go for it. Are you passionate or skilled in uh, quality or administration or research or education? That's something that, again, I think find what's important to you, but seize and look for those opportunities. Even if perhaps they're not offered to you, look for opportunities to create them. The example I'll give is I had a very difficult and challenging case with a poor outcome. And I said to a trusted partner, I said, look, you know, what sort of forum do we have to discuss these cases so we can all learn for them? He's like, oh, you know, we really don't. I said, no. And he goes, no, we, it would be awesome to have something like that. And from that, I basically built up, you know, the, I know that the connotation has kind of changed over time, but, you know, what is historically known as an M&M conference, morbidity mortality conference. I think now it's a little bit more, um, PC to call it a systems-based practice or a systems review, which I think has some value in that the analyzing a medical error isn't about finding out what one person did wrong. It's what are all the pieces that went wrong to allow an error, to allow a poor outcome uh, in order to improve upon it. But that to me was something that I've always been passionate about and was a perfect opportunity to seize upon. And it's been very well received by the group as a whole. And people have said like, oh, we've, we've needed this for so long. Um, So look for those opportunities, whatever is passionate, and bring those to your group in addition to your ability as being a great anesthesiologist. And especially in the challenging political climate we have when it comes to anesthesia and anesthesia care, you know, how do you bring value outside of the operating room is really important. Yeah, that's a whole nother episode. We're getting all these episode ideas right now, but someone better be writing this down. Yeah. Okay, we'll keep it moving. Number nine, know your limits and the limits of the system. Correct. And I hit on this pretty early, but it's always okay to ask for help. And I guarantee, again, anyone in your group 
would rather help you avoid a poor patient outcome than not lend a helping hand. So classic example for this. So my second day I was late or more or less late. My third day as my kind of standard pre-op evaluation goes, I said, you know, have you ever had any problems with anesthesia in the past? No, no problems. I just have this. And the patient handed me a difficult airway letter. This is my, when, and on top of that, it was a rather old letter. So it wasn't especially helpful where it said, this is how my airway was successfully secured. It basically said, this patient was really hard to intubate. Good luck. Wow. And so I said to one of the more senior docs who we have what's called a charge role. They're the guy that kind of runs the board and then is in many ways just there to also help lend a, a helping hand if needed in addition to their own rooms. And I said, look, man, I don't know what I'm getting into here. This lady just handed me a difficult airway letter. Do you mind, you know, being an extra set of hands when I induce? And there was no hesitation. There was no, what's wrong with you? There was no, you know, you sure you can't handle this by yourself? It was with, you know, without a blink of an eye, sure thing, call me when you're ready. And that was that. And so, I, th- and I think that was probably looked at more favorably, I would hope, than had I gotten myself into trouble and was on a third or fourth intubation attempt and was calling overhead for all, you know, for surgical airway. Yeah. So again, you know, trust your training, but know your limits. And it's okay to ask for help. Similarly, while I feel quite comfortable taking care of healthy peds, we're a big hospital, we have a lot of sick kids. And I was scheduled in the endoscopy area and they said, okay, you know, the next case we're bringing down is a two-year-old from the PICU. And I said, uh, this, this is not within my comfort zone. And again, I called to one of our charge docs and said, look, this, I'm not comfortable with this case. I'm happy to, you know, again, about how you're phrasing. I'm not trying to just sit this case out. I said, you know, can I swap with one of the PEDS cardiac guys or one of the PEDS guys? And no one batted an eye because no one wants bad patient outcome. Everyone wants to take best care of the patient. So trust your training, but know your limits. And when it comes to limits, it's not only your individual limits, it's important to know the limits of the system. And when you come to a new place, in addition to not name dropping and not being rude to people, you have to work and fit within the resources and confines of the system that you're in. So a classic example that I think of is we did a lot of thoracic epidurals Actually, both places I trained in. So Justin, non-clinical person, epidural, you know, you've probably heard when women have babies, when they go into labor, kind of the same idea, but we actually place it higher up in the back and it's useful for thoracic surgery or certain abdominal procedures. But for the, a program with thoracic epidurals to succeed requires a lot of pieces to be in place. You need nurses who are well-educated about thoracic epidurals and how to use the pumps or how to troubleshoot them or what to look out for for a problem. You need a team of either physicians or advanced healthcare practitioners who can round on those epidurals and make sure they're working appropriately. All these pieces need to be in place. And at the group that I arrived in, they didn't really have those pieces. And they've even said that they've struggled in the past with a successful thoracic epidural program because of some of these pieces. So it would not do me any good to necessarily drop and say, well, I think the best thing for this patient is a thoracic epidural if there's not sort of the support and resources for that to be a useful solution. So it's great to bring ideas and bring change. And hey, maybe that's something you can take on as a new physician to build upon that program if it's something you're passionate about. But you have to know what works for your system 
And again, it all kind of blends together. Flexibility, adaptability, and a go-getting attitude is certainly the ways you can bring change even within limits of a system. I'm curious with that tough airway, how'd it go? Oh, it was actually really easy. <laughs> and, and it's not a it's not a bragging point. I suspect that it was an older letter and airway equipment has evolved substantially in that time with video laryngoscopy and whatnot. So yeah. in fact, the she had the difficult airway bracelet uh, that was put on her because she had the letter and the uh, senior physician who very pleasantly you know, came right in the room as I was ready to induce and we easily secured the airway. He goes, oh, cut that thing off and <laughs> that is dead. So luckily it went okay. That's funny. Great. And I think my number 10, and I think a lot of what I've said today, and hopefully I didn't sound too redundant, kind of points in this direction, is bring solutions. Don't bring problems. You are undoubtedly going to find problems in any new job you find. The problems exist everywhere. And it might be the same problems of somewhere else you've been. It might be different problems. And that's fine to identify and address them. But again, it will take you so much further to say, hey, this is something I noticed. I'm not comfortable with it. I think it's problematic. This is what I think we can do about it. How can we do this? Who do I need to talk to? As opposed to just coming in with complaints and being, oh, well, you know, your pre-op workflow really sucks. You know, chances are someone's already commented upon that. Um, <laughs> and if there, if there aren't already programs in place to fix them, that's where you jump in and again, show your value and bring a solution to the people who are in charge. Makes a lot of sense. So I want to close Dr. Freiberg with a question that I ask most of my physician guests. I don't know that I prepared you for this in advance. I'm curious to hear what you have to say. I'd love to hear a brief anecdote from your career as a physician about a time when you were, you know, obviously you've worked really hard. You've trained a lot. You're, you're an expert in a lot of different things to be an attending anesthesiologist. Tell me about a time when, whether it was a tough case or collaboration with some of your uh, physician colleagues, a time when there was this moment of like actualization of realization of like, I, I kind of, I've made it. <laughs> we made it. Like all the hard work has paid off. I've achieved the goal. I've attained the skills and I, I'm a, I'm a competent physician in ways that as like an MS2, I could have only dreamed. Right. Oh man. I, I still get hit with those moments every now and then. And it's funny because, you know, I, I'm lucky to work with a group that I really like all of the, all the folks that I work with and we text and we ask each other clinical questions. And there's folks that like one, one day I literally will text them. I'll, I will just straight up text them. Like I'm the best anesthesiologist. I've worked. <laughs> and you know, at the following day I'll be like, dude, I'm going to get fired. Like, you know, again, not because anything bad thankfully happened, but just some, you know, I keep a critical eye on myself and my own performance. But if I had to pick a case, I guess, uh, it was a case that had been kind of punted along the way. I think largely because no one wanted to deal with it. Combination, both from a surgical standpoint uh, and an anesthesia standpoint, so much to the effect that it somehow got scheduled on a weekend, which is not a good time for things to necessarily happen but it was a patient with a anterior mediastinal mass. And so for any anesthesia folks listening, those are potential disasters to put a patient to sleep, depending on how symptomatic they are, because we are experts at airway management, I would say pretty much from you know, chin to sternum, pretty much anything in there we can work with. 
anything beyond that, there's not a whole lot we can fix. And I wasn't convinced that even my surgical colleague quite understood uh, what we were potentially getting ourselves into. And I guess a really bold physician may have just said like, oh, no way. But again, in sort of phrasing things and tuning things, I said to the surgeon, I said, look, I'm going to do this case. Either you put in what we call, you know, awake groin lines um, so that a patient can go into ECMO emergently if they need to, or I'm going to. And he was like, yeah, 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 whatever you need to do. And kind of went about his day. And I think that's a pretty bold uh, induction plan. One, you probably sounds good and oral boards and all sorts of things like that, but it's a lot to, you know, tell a patient to go through. And I coached the patient and explained what I was concerned about and how this is different from how we normally do things and all the kind of plans I put in place. But, you know, I made sure the perfusionist was in the room. I told the nurses what I wanted. Um, and I really think that in that moment, I took control of the situation, informed the patient, did a very sort of complicated induction that was executed better than I could have dreamed. You know, and hopefully that was a mix of skill and luck, as I think a lot of great things are. And I think it was that moment, quite specifically, that I inspired the text to some of my friends where I said, you know, I'm the best anesthesiologist <laughs> in the world, that I got him, you know, through this induction safely. So uh, that was a good moment. I'm sure there's been more of them and more that are maybe a little bit more uh, touchy-feely about times that I really know that I made a patient feel good and all that good stuff. But that one stands out for me anyway. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for sharing that story and thank you for joining us today on the Anesthesia Success Podcast. It was a pleasure, Justin. Thank you so much for having me. I look forward to maybe podcasting more on some of these ideas we came up with. And again, uh, best of luck to all the new attendings, all the new private practice docs, residents, interns. You're going to do great. Take my tips, believe in yourself, work hard. And uh, I still think medicine is the best field there is. So uh, you're in the right place. If you liked what you heard this week, head on over to anesthesiasuccess.com where you can find more content and free resources to help you build a successful career in anesthesiology and pain management. If you wanted to leave a review in iTunes, I would also really appreciate it. Thanks for using some of your valuable time to join me today on the Anesthesia Success Podcast.